Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and the focus of this podcast is crime reporting. Duncan Campbell was the crime correspondent of The Guardian and the chairman of the Crime Reporters Association. He's written four books on crime, including his latest, We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds, The Shocking History of Crime Reporting in Britain. Hatton Gardens, Easter, no one at home. We go down the shaft like Spider-Man, then through the wall, and the vault is ours. Most recently, Duncan acted as consultant on King of Thieves, the 2018 film starring Michael Caine and Ray Winston, about the Hatton Garden heist, which was based partly on an article Duncan wrote about the case. Duncan was speaking at an investigative journalism conference at Newcastle University, hosted by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with the Centre for Investigative Journalism. And he was interviewed by Zabida Malik, a journalist and broadcaster who worked on the BBC's Today programme for 18 years. Well, welcome to this Q&A with Duncan Campbell. Duncan began his career in crime reporting when there were criminals and detectives who had nicknames such as Mickey the Laughing Bank Robber and the Old Grey Fox. There was even a journalist who was called the Prince of Darkness. Duncan has had a career in journalism that many of us aspire to. He wrote for a national newspaper for 20 years with a ringside at some of the biggest criminal cases of our age, won awards, broadcasting, eight books, and consulting on a major film. I remember reading Duncan's work when he covered the West case at the seven-week trial, and it was a must-read for me. And whenever I came across Duncan's byline in The Guardian, I knew it was a story that I should read. So it's a real privilege for me to get to talk to you this evening. Thank you very much. So I've got privilege to... for me to be interviewed by somebody who's done so much distinguished work in... Well, I'll stop the loving. OK, all right. Um, I'm going to ask an awkward question first. Did you have a nickname as a reporter? I didn't, I'm afraid. You mentioned the Prince of Darkness, who's now sadly dead, but I was at his uh, memorial service, as it were, in a pub, uh, opposite the old Bailey, and everybody was remembering the prince as he was known. His real name was Jimmy Nicholson. And he used to introduce himself by saying, uh, I'm known as the Prince of Darkness, and uh, I've, I've uh, been at every siege since Troy. Uh, I've been on more doorsteps than a milk bottle, and I've covered every execution since Christ. And I'll tell you something, that guy was innocent. And that was, his, that was his spiel for everybody. Everybody had, oh, no, he start, Jimmy's starting it again. And when he, uh, when he was elderly, he, he got Alzheimer's. He ended up in a um, care home in London and entertained the staff there by, about his, with his stories of crime. And they thought he must have been a criminal because he kept talking about the Crays and the Richardsons and everything. And they found out he'd been a crime reporter. And the one problem they had was they couldn't get him to go to bed at night he would, it would, because he was always it was a night character. And eventually they worked out that if they told him they needed his clothes for forensics, he would take them off and get into his pajamas. So every night the staff said, Jimmy, uh, Mr. Nicholson, we need your clothes for forensics. Oh, yeah, of course. I'd, I'd take them off. Anyway, that was the Prince of Darkness. Rest in peace. 
Why did you choose crime as your beat? Why not say health or social policy, which also gives an insight into human nature? Well, I've always been interested in crime. I like reading, I'm afraid, true crime magazines as a uh, schoolboy, and um, because I, I liked the fact that there was something dark going on there, I suppose, and various. Um, Robert Browning said, our interests in the dangerous edge of things, the honest thief um, the, the, and the, the superstitious atheist and so on. And I think that there's always something interesting about the forbidden. And, and at school, the interesting people were the misbehaviors at the back of the class rather than the prefects. And I think I had that as an early interest. And... Um, when I was a, a student journalist, like some of you here, um, the most interesting subjects, I'm talking about the early 1960s, were things that at that stage were forbidden. And I can remember we did, we used to do a feature every week, and, and one term we had of the six features, one was about uh, homosexuality, illegal at that time, one was about abortion, illegal at that time, and one was about capital punishment, legal and enforced at that time. And so it, it was a way of, crime was a way of seeing how uh, people regarded, people decided what was illegal, what was acceptable, how people should be punished, and, and so on. So it, it, I've always thought that crime is this wonderful prism through which you can see what is happening in in society, what is regarded as a crime now, how it should be punished, how it should be reported, and so on. There have been significant cutbacks in local papers. Is it these cuts alone which have affected the way crime is now reported, or are there other factors at play? I think that's a, ma a major factor. Uh, <clears throat> the number of... There are 25% fewer journalists... Uh, than there were 10 years ago. I mean, it's an enormous... These are people employed in journalism. Enormous uh, cutback. And somebody recently did a survey a couple of years ago on the number of court cases covered uh, by local papers. And they found that in a, a five-year period, the coverage in local papers, your local papers here or, or anywhere... Uh, was down by 40%, the amount of court coverage. In national papers, it was down by 30%. So what's happening is that there's a whole area of life that, that people used to know about, how people were punished for all kinds of different offences, whether it was drugs or domestic violence or, or whatever, that people are completely unaware of. And um, I think that that has been the great tragedy and that newspapers uh, can't afford to send people to cover court cases in the way that they did and they can't afford to send people on complicated crime stories that require people to spend say a, um, a month or two working on something. I mean some of you will remember there used to be a program called Trial and Error uh, on Channel 4 and a program called Rough Justice for much longer on BBC which investigated miscarriages of justice, and they take an enormous amount of time to investigate, but 
they cost a lot of money, and BBC, understandably, could not dedicate that amount of money, and nor could Channel 4. And therefore, as a result of that, a whole lot of areas are not covered, and we get an enormous amount of coverage about celebrity gossip and stuff like that, but a whole lot of other news that I believe should be covered to do with what classes as crime or, or, or police work is, is ignored. And particularly in the kind of last two or three years of Brexit, there's a whole area of life that is barely reported. I mean, at, the, at one level, you've got the tragic death of 39 young Vietnamese coming in. People have been arrested and everything like that. That's one area of crime. But at, at another level, Britain has the largest number of per head of population of people in prison of any country in Western Europe. Uh, Turkey has a slightly higher level, but Britain, we, we not have 90,000 people are locked up in this country at the moment. Why are they there? Should they be there for that amount of time? All those questions I think are terribly interesting. And I don't think that because newspapers have had to cut their staff and cut the amount of play room they give them, and we haven't yet had uh, the other forms of, of um, digital news able to compensate for that. But crime dramas on Netflix are hugely popular, as are the documentaries, podcasts about crime. So do you think news editors just don't get it? No, I'm sure they do, that. but I think the, the problem is, 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 is a budgetary one. I mean, you mentioned the West case, the, the trial of Rose West, which went on for seven weeks. Um, we were able to cover that every single day. Every newspaper had a reporter who was there for, throughout the trial. We didn't have to tweet at that stage because Twitter didn't exist. But by hanging around in courts on, on those occasions, you meet the lawyers after they've given evidence, you meet the witnesses, you meet the police, the detectives, and so on, you meet your colleagues. All of that, if a newspaper is, every newspaper or every website, every news website is now 24 hours. There's this constant pressure to update and update and update. And therefore, there isn't the time, the leisure that we had of, uh, could you any chance to have a drink or a cup of coffee? Could we just talk about that? And that's just one er element of it. And the police are now after Leveson, after the Leveson inquiry, I think most of you are probably familiar with it, Leveson recommended that, that the police did not mix socially with journalists. Um, and that has had an enormous effect in terms of, of the kind of contact that one would have um, where they would explain, the reason we're not doing anything on this is because of that, or the reason we arrested so-and-so is that. All of that... Has, has broken down because the police are, are now terribly nervous about being seen talking to a journalist in case somebody thinks they're going to bung them some money. I mean, when I started, uh, the one crime correspondent used to, every Thursday night, he met the police in, in, a, in a bar in, off Berkeley Square in London, and he, always, he would have five or six envelopes with the money that whoever had given him a story, not big sum, you know, 20 quid, 10 quid, 50 quid or something. And it was just known that, that they'd give him a little tip off and so on. Now, I'm not suggesting it, 
that one returns to that world, but the time um, when you could have a kind of demystification of something from just having a lunch with somebody, a lot of that has gone, and that, what was seen as a kind of golden age of crime reporting, when it, it did get a lot of coverage, newspapers would have a crime bureau rather than just a, one crime reporter or crime correspondent. But I think that has gone, and I think, as I said earlier, it has been replaced to a great extent by celebrity news, you know, kind of somebody's tweeted about this, and, there's a, and you can put a big picture of somebody who's on a reality show, and I think that, that is bad for what we know about the society we live in. Levison aside, do you think crime reporting has improved in any way? Um, I, I, there are some, I mean, there are some very good crime reporters. Some things have changed for the better. I mean, when I started, it was very unusual for any women to be writing about crime. It was not seen as a woman's job. But Sylvia Jones became, who was the Daily Mirror's crime correspondent, was the first woman to be in the Crime Reporters Association, this strange organization, which I was chairman of for a few years. And when she started writing as a young woman writing about crime, um, people would phone up her, if she got an exclusive for the Mirror, people would phone her husband anonymously and say that she'd got the story because she was sleeping with the detective. And, I mean, that was, the, that was the kind of pressure that she was under. And she said she found it very easy dealing with the police, very easy dealing with criminals, but very unpleasant dealing with other crime reporters. And that was the, the world in which she moved. It used to be a very white profession. That has also changed. Um, in terms of, of women, I think there's the, chair, the current chairman of the Crime Reporters Association for the first time in 30 years is a woman. Uh, those things have changed and are that much better. The other thing that's changed is it used to be an enormously uh, drinking culture, like a lot of British journalism was. Um, a famous story, which James knows. But in, in the old days, when there was a murder outside London, crime reporters would go to the area it had taken place, stay in a hotel, and quite often the same hotel as the, report, as the police, the detectives, and everyone would have a drink in the evening and another drink and so on in the bar, and stuff like that would go on. And the, sometimes people got so drunk they couldn't file their story, and there was a guy called Bill Marshall who's no longer with us, so I can tell the story. But um, he, he was so drunk, he worked for the Daily Mirror, that he was unable to file his story. And the guy from the Daily Mail, just to prove that there's good in, in all of us, uh, a guy from the Daily Mail phoned up and said, Bill's been called his news desk, because he's meant to file by 7 o'clock at night. Bill's been called out on a job, so I'm reading the story over for you. We used to, you used to phone the copy in to, to a copy taker in the days before internet and everything like that. And they would often go, is there much more of this? And you went, yeah, okay. And, um, but anyway, on this occasion, he, uh, the reporter phoned it in for Bill Marshall. And um, the, the following day, Bill Marshall, having woken up after it with a terrible hangover, came down into the breakfast where all, 
reporters were sitting, holding, proudly holding his copy of the Daily Mirror, and said, there you are, you assholes. Don't ever say I can't file when I'm pissed. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and that was very much the world. John Weeks, who was the Telegraph's crime correspondent at the time, who I interviewed for this book, um, said that on average, the, a crime reporter would be drinking eight pints a day. And I said, how on earth did you fit it in? And you'd start at 11, 30, 12, you know. Every Monday night, they hung out with the flying squad. And if the flying squad were too drunk to drive to a scene, one of the reporters would. I mean, it, that, that has changed now. By the time I left The Guardian, everyone was jogging to work or going to Pilates <laughs> afterwards. You know, the, the notion of, of, of that as a way of, of uh, meeting contacts uh, and hanging out together had gone. So in some ways, uh, sad, but in other ways, much better for people's livers. <laughs> but essentially, the skill of reporting um, crime is, has stayed the same, do you think? I think so. I mean, there's, some, there's been some very good books recently. I mean, my colleague, former colleague at The Guardian, Nick Davis, his book on the great hacking inquiry, Hack Attack, I do recommend. And I think he done, did very, very brave work in, in taking on um, News International and, and Murdoch um, and exposing the hacking. And, and another book called, called Hack, by Graham Johnson, who used to be a reporter on, um, on the news of the world. It, it's a fascinating inside story. He's kind of gone the other way, Graham, and has written a very honest book about all the stories he made up for the news of the world, uh, <laughs> including one which is about a, drug, a far-right drug dealer, uh, a far-right group who were selling poisonous drugs to black people in Brixton. And he had a picture of uh, the guy doing it, which was actually a friend of his with blonde dyed hair and a, a baseball cap on, named with some bogus name. And it was all completely made up. But it always ended with, a file has been passed to Scotland Yard. And nothing, nothing you know, Scotland Yard, if you phone them, no, it's news of the world, Duncan, nobody passes it. They, they don't exist, these files. And that was the, I mean, that was one of the elements of, uh, of reporting that, that went on. But in turn, one of which Nick exposed. So that, that works by people like that, honest reporters like that, I think is, is admirable and there is good stuff going on. Vice, I don't know if some of you get the, go to Vice at all. They have a very good guy called Max Daly writing about drugs. Uh, which is of enormous importance in society, but hardly written about in any detail. I mean, 12% of the prison population are in for uh, drug offences. Uh, there's 1,500 people prosecuted for possession of cannabis every month. I mean, it, it's, it's a big issue. It's not being discussed in the current election, but it's something that people should know about and be aware of, and it affects gangs, murders, everything like that. But again, it, as I say, I think we're at a bad stage news-wise because of this repetitive, repetitive stuff about Brexit and the election and everything, and a whole lot of, whole area of our society, which I think is, 
crucial is being ignored. Right, a couple of quick-fire questions. Yes. Do you remember the first ever case you covered? And is there a case that you wish you had covered that got away from you? Um, I, I do remember... And the first big case was something called the Torso Murder Trial, which took place in London, was uh, two guys who were murdered. One of them was cut up, and his torso, as you might have guessed, was put in the Thames and washed up, um, and his head was eventually left in a public lavatory in, in Islington. But it was an interesting case from my point of view, investigated by a detective whose nickname was the Old Grey Fox, uh, but Wickstead, who's now dead, so I, we can talk about him as well. But from those days when, um, before something called the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, when a lot of evidence against criminals was what they had supposedly said uh, in the car on the way to the station. They were known as verbals. And they, Peter Rimbert, who used to be the commissioner at Scotland Yard, said that the very first person he arrested said, it's a fair cop, Gov. And he said he knew that nobody would believe that this guy had done it. I believe Peter in because I think he was an honest one. But they got much more subtle and they tended to be, who told you, Bert? Who told you it was us? Or you'll never prove it. That was the normal one. But anyway, the, a group of people, uh, six different people were charged in connection with the murder. They were known as the le supposedly the legal and general gang. That was the way that the press presented them. And as the trial went on, it was the longest murder trial in the Old Bailey at that time, it went on for seven months, I learned more and more about both police methods and that whole criminal world. And it turned out that there was no gang called the Legal and General Gang. It was a concoction by the police and the prosecution. The jury, to a great extent, accepted it. They had one... Uh, supergrass, I don't know if you know what a supergrass is, somebody who gives evidence against, a criminal who gives evidence against his former colleagues who gave very convincing evidence, he went to prison he um, found God in prison, he came out and he confessed to uh, he confessed to me and we wrote a story about it in the Guardian and eventually the, the people who'd been convicted and sentenced to life were, were released, but they, it took 20 years before they were released, and they came out as, as elderly men. I mean, one of them said, thank, thank God for uh, um, Arsenal season tickets and Viagra, uh, because life had carry, could carry on for him when he came out. But it was a story that opened up a whole lot of areas for me. And in terms of what do I regret, I would have liked to have found Lord Lucan. Nobody ever did. <laughs> there, there used to be a journalist called Garth Gibbs, um, now dead as well, who claimed that he had... I mean, there were all sorts of sightings of Lord Lucan, who, as you know, murdered his, his nanny, or his family nanny. It's only Rhys Mogg who actually still has a nanny, I think. But the, um, he... he went on the run and people would cite him in all sorts of different places and reporters, particularly around kind of January or February, would hear that he'd been spotted in Kenya or the Bahamas <laughs> or something like that. And Garth Gibbs claimed to have 
not found Lord Lucan in more places than anyone else, because <laughs> he'd not found him in Macau, he'd not found him in Bahamas, he'd not found him in Kenya, it, all these different places. So I would have liked, I think he's definitely dead now. I think he probably, I mean, the theory he got is... Away. He got away. Pardon? You believe he got away? I think he, I think he probably got away. I mean, somebody very nearly cited him, I think, in, in Kenya. But whether or not he jumped off a boat, as one suggestion is, I don't know. Okay. Unsolved. And what three tips do you have for future crime reporters? Um, one, um, I would, um, one, I would read this book. Yeah, <laughs> buy it. Um, two, I would, um, I would go to your nearest magistrate's court or crown court or, or both. I mean, I'm, we've spoken a little bit about it. In a day in court, uh, almost any court, you will learn as much about drugs, immigration, domestic violence, mental health, poverty, housing, as in you know, any number of think tank reports. And they're often the most unexpected stories about extradition. I've been covering, get, got involved in the Hatton Garden case because I knew a couple of the old boys on it from days gone by. And one of them has just been sent back inside under the Proceeds of Crime Act for not paying the money back. You've got another six years if you don't pay what you allegedly stole back. And as we were waiting, I noticed in, this is Westminster Magistrates Court, there were six extradition cases going on. And you think, right, why are they being extradited and for what and what were they doing here and what countries have they come from? So number one, go to, go to spend a day, spend a week in court and you will learn an amazing... I mean, hands up who's ever been to court. You don't have to say whether it was for a conviction. You have all been to... Everyone's been to court. Oh, well, that's very good. But um, that would be my one recommend. Oh, that's one. Two is court, and three, I honestly suggest you join the National Union of Journalists. <laughs> um, I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, this, if, if you're at a crime scene or you're trying to get into a court and they've never seen you before, this says on the back, the National Police Chiefs Council recognise the holder of this card as a bona fide news gatherer. Well, and... I joined in, in uh, nearly 50 years ago now, and I still go to freelance branch meetings in London, and it's a wonderful way of meeting other journalists in the same, either in the same world or not, but it, 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 does, make a, um, it does make life easier. You, you are aware of what's going on in your industry. I got sued for libel on, on one, I've had very little brushes with things. The union is a wonderful place for giving you support, legal support or, or moral support. And if any of you aren't a member and are interested, they've, they've given me some of their leaflets if you're interested afterwards. But those, I think, are three. I mean, I can, if anyone's interested, I'm more than happy to give people my details if you are actually interested in specifics of, of crime because, it, you know, it, it's hard in a, in a time, uh, in a small time limit. But if, if it is something, I think it's a wonderful field there used to be an ad for for people to join the police and the slogan was dull it isn't and that's what i've always found about 
crime, one, you're always being surprised by, in the old, a lot of criminals who got long sentences, 10, 18 years or something, got very bored in prison and did open university degrees. Bobby King, who was an old armed robber, one of the famous Wembley armed robbers, got very bored by his prison inmates and took two university degrees and he became an expert in, in the works of Virginia Woolf and on one occasion I was meeting him in the a pub in Islington and he was reading Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse and I thought oh this is funny and I mentioned it to another armed robber who'd also done an open university degree and I said you never guess I saw Bobby King in the pub the other day and he was reading To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf and without a pause he went it's not her best and <laughs> so that it taught me to never assume and I mean all I, what I've learned again and again, and you know what good detectives know, is never to assume. You you um, you will always be surprised whether by the criminals or by the detectives or by the judges or the barristers. So there's always something underneath it. So you're, there's it, it's it's a fascinating world. Well, let's open up to some questions from the audience, and their questions are bound to be more incisive than mine. Does anyone have any? Yeah, I think students talk quite a lot of teaching at university. And the biggest problem we have is that the unhelpfulness of the courts. Yes. In that they tell you, I mean, we've had, uh, we've had clerks coming up to us and saying, you know you're not allowed to take uh, notes in court unless you've got permission from the judge. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you're not allowed... You're not allowed this, you're not allowed to do that. And, and also, they won't give you um, addresses and ages and names of defendants, even though they're not read out in, in Crown Court. They so say you're not entitled to it. Yeah, I, I agree. Protection yeah. So I, how do you get around these issues? I think you're... I mean, it, 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 it's true. A lot of courts... I worked in America for five years, and they're fantastically helpful. I mean, they have a kind of feeling towards the press that it should be made available. Um, the Cairncross report, which was carried out earlier this year by Francis Cairncross, one of their recommendations is that courts should make available to the public who is on trial, just one line of what they're charged with. You can get this for the Old Bailey. If you go to the Old Bailey online, you will find their main, uh, what the name of the accused and actually what they're charged with. It's very rare for any other courts, and I think it's appalling. You know, I think all it needs is one, one line of what they're actually charged with, and I think, I, I mean, we've all had experiences of, of unhelpful court staff and, and so on, and I agree. I think it's, in, it's appalling, and I, I think it's something worth, worth writing about and campaigning on, or asking Frances Cairncross what, what is happening to her recommendations, because they should be coming in in the, in, in the new year. You mentioned about how different the world was uh, when you started, and I wanted to ask how much of an impact um, the growth of the war on drugs from the 1960s until now, and the intense focus of the government, the police, and the public on drugs affected not just crime reporting, but general organised crime in the country. 
Well, drugs has ha I mean, what happened with, with drug in the old days, uh, the old school criminals in the sort of 60s and 70s looked down on drugs. It was uh, something that they didn't have anything to do with. I mean, one, one thing we haven't dealt with very much is, is the kind of a lot of very racist stuff with, came through crime reporting. Uh, in the 1920s, the Chinese were blamed for bringing all the opium in, like, like Britain actually took more opium towards China than the other way around. But, um, and they were seen as the yellow man in Limehouse um, debauching white womanhood in, in Britain. Uh, so they, they, that was how drug dealers were seen, as either Jamaicans or Chinese or uh, Pakistani uh, or Turkish. Then in prison, the, in, the, in the sort of early, late 60s, early 70s, Suddenly you got people like Howard Marks and that kind of hippie drug dealer um, meeting up with bank robbers and, and so on. And they suddenly realized you don't have to have a gun, you don't have to jump over a counter or hold somebody up or stop get into a getaway car. You can import drugs. And there was a period then when, they, when there was a kind of linkage up between the two and when both professional criminals started taking cannabis. I mean, a lot of prison governors were very happy when cannabis arrived in prison compared to what they have now, which is spice, because, hey, just listen to some music, man, and, you know, like that. Now, spice, it's a very, very dangerous drug. They, people stop taking cannabis in prison because it stays in your blood system for 28 days, whereas spice and crack, they go right through it. And that's why if you were being tested, oh, you, you would be caught if you were taking cannabis. Anyway, that's getting away a bit from your question. It's affected, I mean, what's weird covering stuff now is we're in the middle of an election. You have Michael Gove, who's a cabinet minister who admits he took cocaine. You have uh, David Cameron's memoirs talking about his drug taking. Uh, that all of those politicians and um, lots of the journalists writing about them have taken drugs, but very, very few people will deal. Should we be? Ha Is there a discussion during the election about whether you decriminalise? Or uh, I think the Liberal Party are in favour of, of uh, legalisation. I think that Scott Nats and Vlad Cymru and Greens are in favour of decriminalisation, but it's more or less lost. Um, and it had an enormous effect both in terms of, I mean, a lot of the gang fighting and the, the killings that are going on. And we still have a very low murder rate in this country compared to most of the rest of the world. We're worse than most of Western Europe, but obviously better than the Americas and, and so on. But it has had, a, you're right, it has had a great effect and will continue to do so until there's a change in the law. You get a lot of, a wonderful book called Good Cop, Bad War by a guy called Neil Woods, who was an undercover officer in, in Brighton. A fascinating description of, of what it's like. He's now part of a group of former officers campaigning to legalize drugs.
Yes, it's a very, that's a very good question. I mean, that's one of the reasons I encourage people to, to join the union branch, because you will meet, I mean, um, in, in the branch, that, the freelance branch in London, a lot of people of your age who are um, at that stage, and they find, ah, you know, uh, BuzzFeed will take something. I think it's interesting that Vice um, uh, has a full-time drugs person, for instance. I think a lot of those places should have a full-time courts correspondent or something, and, and there's no harm in suggesting it. Um, part of the Cairn Cost Review suggested that there, there is a, a kind of public funding, local coverage of courts, partly connected with the BBC. Um, it hasn't really happened yet, but partly because there isn't a great initiative. I would think of what magazines might be interested in the kind of story that you would be. There's a new publication called Byline Times. I recommend that you have a look at that. They're looking, they're, they're just kicked off. They're looking for stuff. Um, I, uh, I mean, papers like the, the Guardian and Observer and uh, I, the Eye are open to stuff. I would look at magazines. There are true crime magazines that pay very badly but do take stuff. Um, I would badger the local uh, newspaper, if, if you're writing rather than broadcasting, she'll give you much better advice on broadcasting, which I don't know about. Um, but I, I agree, it's, it's very hard, and that's why I recommend the kind of linking up with other people and then just saying, who would I like to write for? I'm going to put this forward as a suggestion and, and um, see if I can um, crack it that way. Um, well, the Rose, the West case was a grim case. I mean, it was uh, because it went on for for seven weeks, and every I mean, it was the only time where I've had. It was interesting you followed it because it's the only time I've had people say, "I know you're down there, but I, I'm afraid I'm not reading anything that you're writing," because it was uh, they, they have a system. Um, the, the, the jury in the West case asked if they could see the house because they wanted to see where things had happened. How could anyone know what was going on? And in, as some of you will know, the judge said, obviously the, the press wanted to go, and the judge said w w only one person can go and it'll be a pooled report. And I've never won a lottery in my life, but on this occasion I was got the, pulled the name out of the hat and I accompanied the jury round the West's house. And what was the sort of creepiest thing about it was how tiny it was, that while there were eight bodies in a, a basement, you know, like that amount of space, in a house that eight, eight or nine people were sleeping in, either the lodgers or, or children or, or the West, and a garden also full of bodies. And a little drinks cabinet and, and stuff like that. So you had this sort of normality upstairs. And the, the reason they got away with it for so long was they picked up hitchhiking young women who would see a couple and a kid in the... Ah, at last, you know, 
I can get hitch a lift with these people. It's a man and his wife and his little kiddie, and they would be taken back and tortured. And um, one of the survivors um, did give evidence, and the most haunting thing about it was because she was approached by lots of newspapers beforehand. The trial was nearly um, abandoned um, because um, so many newspapers had made offers to potential witnesses, but fortunately she was able to give evidence. And um, they said, well, why have you come here today? And she said I'm, she had been asked to be a, a babysitter and then was sexually assaulted and managed to escape. And the West's got, a, I think, a fine for it um, in those days, 1972 or something like that. And uh, she said, I'm here for all the girls who didn't make it. And I think that was a kind of tribute to that. But that was, uh, you asked about one that haunted and one that... Ah, from the only, the only compl I, I did a book which also came out recently called The Underworld. The only comeback I had from a criminal in it was that he had taken part in a famous robbery and I had not mentioned him. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the word, the, I had more trouble with the police, to be honest. I got sued by um, five, eight officers, eight detectives from Stoke Newington Police in North London which is a long saga, but it cut a long story short. Uh, at that time, Alan Rusbridger, who was the editor of The Guardian, decided to fight cases that he thought we could win. I mean, it's a high-risk strategy, and they fought the Jonathan Aitken perjury case, Neil Hamilton case, and they fought the Police Federation case. And we had um, George Carman as our barrister, £5,000 a day. He defended Jeremy Thorpe, and... And if any of you ever get sued or prosecuted, his advice was find the person in the jury you most like the look of and deliver all of your evidence to them. Ignore me, the barrister, ignore the judge, and just find, I'm looking around and see hmm, who would be, and who, I would, who would I give my evidence to? And there was a friendly looking guy in the back row, and so I thought, okay, I'll try with him. And uh, the trial went on for three weeks and uh, the jury was out and they came back 10-2 and we won. It cost the Police Federation £600,000 in our costs. And um, the day after I got a phone call and a guy said, um, you don't know me but you've been staring at me for the last <laughs> three weeks. I'm the foreman of your jury. And because we were not allowed to use a whole lot of information in the trial a dreadful judge who's now dead. Um, we were able to publish it afterwards. And he said, I'm sort of doubly glad. And he said, it would be nice to have a drink. And I said, I was terrified if I was seen having a drink with the jury, the foreman of the jury the following day, that the whole thing would collapse. So I never met him. So I've always hoped I would bump into him one day. But that, I mean, libel, which we haven't covered at all, is is a kind of um, potential nightmare situation. Libel laws in, in Britain are much stricter than in, certainly than in the United States. Um, and I mean, it, was, it takes an enormous amount of time. Um, that they appealed, we went, <coughs> they w went back to the Court of Appeal and everything like that. It just 
so that was worse than... Yes. Uh, there's a, a, a precedent set um, in the High Court sitting in Belfast in 2016 by Lord Justice Bennett, who ruled there was no impediment at all to taking notes in the public gallery in the courts. And I have to say that the ushers and the staff in our Crown Courts here actually make that point to our students when they, when they arrive there on the visit. So that's... that's all. My, my own question to you, though, uh, was, do, you, do, you, do you feel you mentioned the way the, the police um, and relationships with journalists were uh, freezing a bit more? Um, one of the problems with Northumberland police around here, people have raised many a times, is, is that they, they tend not to make known to journalists what crimes have taken place, yeah. and they're very controlling about. The, they want to know. They, they want to control the manner in which those, those those issues are reported, and they tend to also cut out the, the journalists and put stuff directly on their their social media when they're putting it out to the public, and, and the journalists around here are getting cut out of the field there. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it, partly post-Leveson, but I mean, partly that there was a culture of if, uh, we will tell you, if asked, we will respond in, in this particular way. And I would quote them... I, Get, you have to get the book to get it, but Robert Mark, who was the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, who came in in the 1970s um, after a lot of corruption within the police in, in the 1960s, and he used to say that his ambition was to arrest more criminals than he employed, and he got rid of about 300 detectives. But he also had a particular thing about the media, and he said that every officer, however junior, should feel free if it was done not in a way that would hamper investigations to talk to the press. I mean, I, the, the actual chapter and verse is in there, and I think it's terribly useful to quote that. Thanks very much. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.